With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there, and welcome to Virtually Speaking Counterpoint. I'm Stuart Zeckman, and for the next hour, you're going to be listening to a discussion I recently had the pleasure of recording with Dr. Joseph White, director of the Center for Policy Studies at Case Western University, and author of a number of important works, amongst which are the excellent Competing Solutions, American Healthcare Proposals, and International Experience, written while a fellow at the Brookings Institution, and the seminal the Deficit and the Public Interest, a book that, in my humble opinion, should be required reading for anyone interested in a thorough understanding of how we, as a country, have come to be in the political and economic situations that we face today. In the conversation you're about to hear, Dr. White explains the thinking, and sometimes lack thereof, behind a little-known and even less understood feature of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, what's come to be called Obamacare by its authors, whose inclusion in the act says quite a lot about the future of the law and its effect on the U.S. healthcare system and ordinary Americans' lives. If you care at all about Obamacare, whether you're for it uh, or against it or whether it's helped people you know or forced them into even more helplessness when confronting powerful healthcare interests, you need to know about this policy that's tucked away inside of the PPACA. It's the implementation of something called accountable care organizations. And people like Time Magazine's Joe Klein can't find enough superlatives in the English language to describe them. They're actually fundamental to putting into practice an idea about how best to solve America's health care problems, an idea that goes by the very Romneyesque name of managed competition. So, are these accountable care organizations, or ACOs, anything in practice like health maintenance organizations, or HMOs? And what do these long-term oriented plans for managed competition portend for Obamacare's supposed path to single payer? Are the ideas and the idea makers behind accountable care organizations radically left-wing, right-wing, or center wing? And who do they think should get to have the final say in healthcare decision making, at least in their ideal world? So let's pick up that conversation now. So let's talk about this. First of all, the PPACA's policy system is a system that is intimately related to managed competition. And I'd like you to first, can you give us, for, for lack of more time, can you give us a summary of what managed competition is and how the PPACA is related to it? Well, managed competition and, and its similar term, managed care, are terms that came up really in the 80s 
and became prominent in the health policy world then. And the idea was that a large part of the problem in healthcare, uh, particularly the cost problem and to some extent quality problems, was that care wasn't coordinated, care wasn't integrated enough and that uh, unnecessary care was being done because of the incentives for doctors and hospitals to make money by just doing whatever the heck they could get away with charging you for or charging the insurance companies for. And so the idea uh, that was uh, developed by uh, economists who wouldn't have thought of themselves as conservatives, the most prominent being Alan Enthoven out at Stanford, mm-hmm. was that uh, you couldn't make a regular market work in healthcare because the the customers, at the time they're sick and need medical care, uh, can't really shop. And so the uh, they don't know enough to shop. They may not be conscious, little problems like that. And so the idea was to try to find some way to simultaneously integrate care, make it more efficient, get rid of the bad incentives for doctors and hospitals to just do anything they feel like uh, to make money, and at the same time make something resembling a market work. And the idea was then that insurers or somebody like insurers, such as um, the existing health maintenance organizations, which were a combination of an insurer and a, and a medical network, like particularly Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente, but uh, plans like Group Health or uh, Puget Sound in Seattle uh, and so on, that the ideal world would be a world in which Organizations like that competed to get contracts to insure people. And so people would, would choose among these integrated medical plans that were both insurers and providers. And uh, they would choose at a time when they were healthy and they had some time to think about it. And they would choose based on some sort of measures of the quality of performance. And in choosing among these plans, they would maximize uh, value because the plans, in order to be less expensive, would not do unnecessary care because they wouldn't be selling to sick people who didn't know and didn't care and just wanted to be treated. They'd be selling to people while they were healthy or to people's employers. So the basic idea was to get around some of the reasons the healthcare market doesn't work like a normal market and to get around some of the... Uh, incentive structures and failures in the organization of healthcare delivery by combining healthcare delivery systems into coherent systems that were managed and then having them compete with each other for contracts to take care of people. And the idea was that that you could choose quality and ensure quality by choosing the best plan and that the plans would have incentives to be high quality and be high value because of the market competition to sell the coverage. So that was the basic idea, and they will, of course, never use any of these words in talking about the Affordable Care Act, but the core cost control ideas in the Affordable Care Act are very similar. So what they have now is the big idea is we're going to have accountable care organizations, and the accountable care organizations are going to be accountable for the cost of people in Medicare, say. And uh, these, these organizations will have an incentive to, for instance, manage the care of a diabetic uh, Medicare patient in a way that the med- diabetic Medicare patient doesn't end up in the hospital because they're actually kept healthy. 
So it's the exact same dream of integrated care with an organization in charge of your care with one huge exception, which is that in the old managed competition idea, you were supposed to choose your organization, choose which competitor you signed up with, which HMO or whatever. They discovered in the 1990s that people really hated this, that when people did not think choice of plan was comparable to choice of doctor. And so the advocates of the affordable care organizations um, came up with this idea, which is politically brilliant but institutionally actually quite stupid, uh, which is that organizations would be counted as if certain people were affiliated with them. So, for instance, you know, the Cleveland Clinic, if it's set up an accountable care organization uh, uh, under the Medicare, you know, for a Medicare contract, Medicare would sort of uh, figure out who goes to the Cleveland Clinic mostly, and the Cleveland Clinic would be responsible for the care, the total cost of those people, even though those people would not, would not be told they had to go to the clinic or the clinic's hospitals, in the clinic's doctors, even though those people might actually go to other doctors and the clinic would be responsible for the costs when they went to the other doctors too, which is a really stupid way of trying to actually manage anything. But it was politically totally necessary because uh, the restrictions on choice of doctor from the managed competition theory, which required you to be managed by this one integrated organization, are not popular. So in various ways, you know, all of the ideas about integrating care are also ideas about making people go to some limited set of providers so that the limited set of providers can be managed and ideally actually provide better care. Who knows? They might in some cases, but it's not a popular idea. Let me just clarify one thing. It sounds, when you're describing accountable care organizations, but in theory, the theoretical accountable care organization and the HMO or actual managed care organization uh, like, say, Kaiser in California, um, it sounds as if these are all sort of competing mini capitation regimes. Yes, yes, absolutely. The, the idea is that, uh, you know, in this case, the capitation, however, isn't just for you know, some set of services like, you know, like doctors in the English NHS get paid a capitation amount for the kinds of services that general practitioners provide. Uh, here, the capitation amount is essentially the equivalent of an insurance premium for, for all care. Uh, but yes, uh, the idea of an HMO was essentially that your premium covers all costs and they try to manage the care to make it work, ideally with the best value. The idea of an ACO uh, is the same idea, it's just you don't necessarily know you're in it and you are forced to choose it and uh, and therefore you aren't told you're being constrained. At least that's the idea. <laughs> but, it, so, but, it's, it's, but it's the same dream. And this, this is a very powerful dream. It's not right-wing, it's not left-wing. It is, a, it is an elite dream. It is an expert dream. Uh, and it is extremely powerful within the health policy experts community. They love it. That's really interesting. Uh, I think there's a quote from you in a book that you wrote in the 1990s. I think you, you say, uh, I think I'm paraphrasing, but you say something along the lines of who would believe that there were 
extremists among the centrists. Um, I think that was a book about the deficit, and we certainly have a lot of uh, centrist extremists about the deficit. But you have enthusiasts. You have enthusiasts for ideas that are not clearly left-wing or right-wing, and people who, who make their livings and live their lives promoting these things. And so, yes, managed competition is... Uh, and delivery system reform are not clearly left-wing or right-wing, but they have their fanatics. They're people who, who this is their cause, and they just rename it in, you know, in different ways uh, and restructure it in different ways, but it keeps coming back. Well, it's, it sounds as if, to a certain degree, we're talking about people who identify the problems of U.S. healthcare with almost solely with the problems of fee-for-service provider providers and provider organizations gaming fee-for-service and seem to identify with insurers as the problems that insurers face are the problems that are to be solved. Is that a reasonable description? Well, I think some of them might say payers, you know. Uh, right, and with the payers, sense, the with government the also, that- right. Right, right. Well, the government is an insurer, so it depends on how you on how you think about it. But you know, I don't think it necessarily has to be a private insurer perspective. For instance, I don't think that, for example, uh, Donald Berwick, who um, Obama uh, nominated to run for the CMS, to the CMS, for uh, and he ended up running it for a year because he didn't get confirmed because he was viewed as uh, by the Republicans as some sort of left wing. Uh, flaming socialist because he said nice things about the National Health Service in England. Uh, now, I don't think Berwick actually, as far as I can tell, doesn't much care how the insurance is structured. He just wants to restructure delivery, but I don't think he has a, a particular love for private insurers per se. Uh, he could say the English National Health Service was a good thing. But the perspective is, it is a payer's perspective, and it also is a rationalizer's perspective. I mean, it comes out of the fields of health services research and a whole lot of sort of academic perspectives. It's a manager's perspective. There has to be a way to manage this better. It's a certain kind of economist perspective. Well, you have to understand things in terms of the incentives that are created. Um, and But there's a dream of rationality that gets, you know, applied in all sorts of other situations, and this is the, the health policy version of it. You know, any of anybody who's ever gone through a strategic planning exercise in a company, uh, probably or in a nonprofit, probably has been subjected to the the kind of rhetoric, and probably understands why it's often nonsense. <laughs> of uh, course. <laughs> um, but it's 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 sort of a it's sort of a Dilbert kind of way of thinking about the healthcare system. Uh, and uh, but it's deeply embedded in our culture that there are better ways of managing, and the ways you manage are you measure. And, uh, and you have to, you really ought to be able for, to pay for performance. It doesn't make any sense to pay for individual services. Uh, and fee-for-service only pays for individual services, so we should find some ways to measure and pay for performance for how much they make, you know, how much this doctor makes you better, and the more they make you better, the more they should be paid. And, and it, it sounds extremely reasonable. And the only problem is we don't know how to do it. There probably are, are other problems with this theory. Um, High school? Well, I, I wouldn't say that. High school education? Grammar school education? I, I, <laughs> are, are the two obvious? You know, where there's this, where there's this incredible, incredibly strong pressure. And again, it's not right-wing or left-wing, really. 
although right, the unions right, don't like right. it. But it's but you know, it's that we ought to be able to measure the performance and reward performance and if we can't measure the performance then something's wrong. Well, something that would occur to people from who who are coming from the non managers or payers or providers perspective, you know, consumers, people who who are out here who who are the recipients of the outcomes of these of these systems. Um, something that would occur to folks out here would be that if we can't trust providers with a fee-for-service system, if providers are always going to game fee-for-service, they're always going to either inflate the cost of uh, the fee, inflate the fee for the service, or they're going to do something that's more sophisticated. When presented with limits or ceilings on their fees for services, they'll create more services to charge for. That's the theory, yep. If we can't trust providers with that kind of power in a marketplace, then why would we trust them in a system of capitation in which the incentives are simply to deny care? Right. So the basic idea is if you pay a provider a fixed fee, then it gets the, the provider gets the fee whether it does anything for you or not, and therefore, and therefore all the incentives go the other way, and they're just as bad, maybe worse. Uh, the answer right. to that, the northern, to northern that people is, in northern England, you know, uh, or Scotland, having to deal with systems of capitation in not particularly generously funded systems, don't have a great time. They're certainly they're certainly at, a, at much in a much worse place than people in France or Germany. Well, uh, or Canada again. When, when the system's underfunded, yes. I mean, one thing you have to remember is that actually, you know, doctors are human beings and. Uh, they actually have some desire to be good most of the time and some pride in doing good work and all of that kind of stuff. And and so the view of doctors uh, that emphasizes their uh, venality, supposedly, and greed is uh, is really quite unfair, though there's some truth to it. Not Not even hospital administrators are entirely venal and greedy, although more so than doctors. But the cartels, the the cartels that that represent those individuals are a different beast entirely. They're fighting for the interests of those groups, and that's a different thing. Than the individuals and saying you know the motives of individual doctors are 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 invariably corrupt, right? We're we're talking about negotiating bodies, right? Right, but even but even there, although one can certainly say say some bad things about some of the things the AMA negotiating bodies have have done, we should remember that the AMA sort of supported the Affordable Care Act, actually, Um, and that. But let's not have let's not have to. We have to be careful about you know in analyzing these options. And just sort of assuming that, uh, that that people will behave badly. Having said that, okay, yeah. okay. Um, the so noted. The theory the theory is that uh, the theory of managed competition was again it relied on measurements of the average. In other words, you cannot really measure performance on individuals, okay, because you just can't control for all the differences of all the specific aspects of any given individual. I mean, they may have screwed up this particular diabetic because the diabetic didn't take a medicine. But you can, arguably at least, look at performance of a population 
with one hospital, a population with another hospital, a population in one insurance plan, a population within another insurance plan. And so the idea was that you could judge which plans were better according to the measures and that therefore the incentives of capitation to undersupply would be reduced by the competition. That's the core idea, and it all depends on being able to measure the, the average performance. It, well, and it, it all depends on the measurements being useful to the patient who's trying to choose. So let's say you're me, okay, and I come to uh, Cleveland in 2000, and I have a choice between two insurance plans, basically, well, one that's real expensive and then two that are affordable. And one of them, I'm con- my family can only go to the Cleveland Clinic hospitals and its affiliated hospitals. And the other, we can only go to University Hospital of Cleveland and its affiliated hospitals. Well, the, that is a sort of managed competition. Not exactly, but sort of. And the problem was, for me, my wife's mother died of breast cancer. My father's, my father died of a heart attack. Cleveland Clinic had a much better reputation for cardiac care. Uh, University Hospitals at that point was the, was the comprehensive cancer center in Cleveland, had a better reputation for cancer care. Now, so what broke the tie? <laughs> okay, what broke the tie was we had a three-year-old and University Hospitals had one of the top-rated children's hospitals in the nation. So we chose the insurance that meant I was choosing the hospital that had a worse reputation for cardiac care for myself. Now, because averages don't matter, <laughs> right? <laughs> who, who cares about the average? You try to think about your particular risk, and you don't necessarily know what your particular risks are. You might choose because you guessed wrong as to what you would get. You might face a situation in which, because it's a family, um, you know, the measure says, you know, one system for part of the family and the other system for the rest of the family. So this this whole choosing thing doesn't work out all that well, uh, you know, in practice. But the theory is that the incentives that at least the incentives to do to do poorly, to do less work, uh, will be reduced by the by the measurement that will show that you know a hospital's you know systematically worse. Well, one of the other premises, though, well, to, to answer your question, who cares about averages? Well, managers do, um, but but one of the other premises is also that the organizations involved won't simply decide not to compete. That the organizations we're talking about will kind of do what you're talking about. They'll specialize in one area, or they'll make themselves available in one area, and by some kind of agreement, whether formal or informal, especially if they're com- they're actually payer organizations too, who are exempt from. Sherman, the Sherman Antitrust, Clayton Antitrust, who are exempt from the FTC, who are who are essentially operating the way that banks operated prior to the Banking Act. That those organizations will simply, you know, you know, not not agree to just divide up populations and and deal with them that way. It assumes that there is such a thing as as competition, that there are markets, and that consumers are participating in them in a way that's completely unlike me being in Southern Manhattan and having. Time Warner Cable, Southern Manhattan, to quote unquote choose from, isn't that a premise of, of well, there's managed de- there's competition? Well, there's definitely there's definitely a premise that there will be competition, and the premise and it is not just a premise that there will be competition. There's a premise that a good institution can expand, or that a bad institution can adopt the practices of a good institution. Right. So competition is supposed to raise quality. 
And if you look at the people, particularly the people at the Dartmouth uh, Center who are the real advocates for the affordable, the people who invented the affordable, not sorry, the accountable care organization idea, mm-hmm. their dream is that uh, you will have competition uh, that this will drive excess capacity out of business. So there will be few, because they think that too much care is being given, unnecessary care is being given. So the competition will drive the, the, the excess capacity out of business and that you will, uh, and that the systems that are highest quality will, you know, sort of spread and replicate themselves. Um, and, you know, they even mention Mayo. And that's very nice, except for the fact it turns out that Mayo in uh, Jacksonville does not resemble Mayo, Mayo in, in Rochester. Right. Right. In other words, Mayo can't replicate Mayo, apparently. Right. right. Uh, if you look, if you look at the data that these that these uh, academics come up with, it's very clear that it is very, very hard, even for you know an organization like Mayo or the Cleveland Clinic to go to some other state and set up itself again and work just the same way. Um, and uh, similarly, you have all this stuff where people say, well, you know, they have the same health care results with, you know, seemingly, again, the measures are questionable, but we have the same health care results seemingly in, you know, central Wisconsin uh, as you do in New York City, so why don't the people in New York City just practice the same way they practice in central Wisconsin? And you know, part of the problem is that there's probably a whole bunch of other things going on that aren't being measured, so that the, there are probably reasons for the differences that they're not picking up. But the other thing is nobody can tell anybody what the organization in central Wisconsin or Geisinger in Pennsylvania is actually doing uh, <laughs> that could be copied. So the idea is that they will compete when it's not necessarily in the interests of companies, of these hospitals or insurers or whoever to compete. It may be much more in their interest to just find a nice market share and make a nice amount of profit. Uh, the theory is that they know how to compete, that the successful, the seemingly more successful according to the measure institutions can be replicated. And that's not at all clear. Uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of leaps of faith involved here. Uh, much of the ideas of whether we're talking accountable care organizations or medical homes, you've heard of that one, right? Mm-hmm. You can have medical homes, yep. except you can't leave it. Uh, you're stuck in it. So you might think it's a medical prison, but they think it's a medical home and paying for performance and all that stuff. A lot of this is what I call a policy unicorn. It's Bruce Vladek, who used to run CMS when it was called HICFA, uh, said that a lot of health policy debate essentially consisted of saying that unicorns are prettier than horses. And what he was saying was that, you know, the things we actually, that actually existed, like actually like regulating prices and stuff like that, were ugly old horses. And all of the arguments were we should do these things that, uh, that would be much prettier and work much nicer, like paying for performance and afford, and accountable care organizations and medical homes. And the trouble is they don't really exist or they exist very rarely and people claim they've seen them but it's not clear that they can point them out and so you know a lot of this is attractive dreams it just doesn't work all that well but but they're different they're different attractive dreams than say the dreams of people who assume a kind of uh, who assume Austrian school economic principles. They're different than the kind of magic unicorns that other sets of people with other premises come up with. They're different than the dreamers who imagined, uh, you know, the NHS out of nothing. 
but the NH, but the NHS isn't a unicorn. The NHS does exist. Now it may exist. You know, it exists in a different place. Uh, what, what I mean uh, is the but, the NHS the NHS as a beautiful new regime yeah. that would take over the world the way that um, you know Trotsky envisioned socialism <laughs> taking over the world. You know, it would just it would just get better and better, and it would be exported and exported, and people would love it, and there it would be. Right. Uh, when of course there are major problems with it, and I, I would argue there are problems to this day with it. I guess going back to this point that you made earlier, you said, lo and behold, I'm paraphrasing, you said, lo and behold, uh, health economists found out, discovered to their shock and dismay that people weren't somehow choosing their healthcare providers, their doctors, their doctors recommended physical therapists, their doctors recommended diagnostic services. They weren't choosing these things the way that economists imagined. And in fact, they preferred to have as much possible choice in the matter. They, they would pay a lot of money, actually, a lot well, of money a- for that possibility in ways that the economists, healthcare economists seem to think was, was not expected. And how does that relate to this strange ideological dream that's neither left nor right? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, I'm not exactly sure uh, where the price points are here. (laughs) In other words, it's very clear that in the 90s, during the so-called era of successful managed care, people didn't like the restrictions. The insurers figured out that they actually weren't making money from the restrictions that that wasn't the, their source of savings. All along, what happened in the, ni- in the mid-90s when, when health insurance premiums slowed down a lot was that they were actually doing a better job of negotiating lower prices for fees for service with the providers. And what happened was that the insurers weren't clear that they, they knew people didn't like the restrictions and they weren't clear that the restrictions were saving money, so they backed off from the restrictions. Right now, you can see in the networks for some of the plans under the Affordable Care Act that they're getting narrower and that the insurers are thinking that people will pay, would rather pay less for a narrower network than more for a broader network. And that may be true, particularly of people who haven't had much insurance before. Of course. So I, I think how this plays out in terms of what people are willing to pay for really varies with how much money they have to begin with. It varies with uh, what they've been used to having before and so on. It varies by age. It varies by age. There's a lot of stuff. But I think that when you are talking about people worried about quality of care, there's really two basic models. And ironically, the the so-called market-based one is actually a planning model. The idea is that somebody will plan a network and what's in the network and what its rules are, and then people will choose the plan they like best. And uh, and they'll be able to figure out in advance what they need so they'll be able to choose among the plans, you know, like like me t- trying to decide, uh, well, is my family going to be more likely to need cardiac care or cancer care? Um, and they'll choose, and then they'll be satisfied or something. Whereas <laughs> I think the way most people, I think most people, when they think of quality, one of the w- things they want is to be able to escape from bad quality. If they're having a bad experience, they want to be able to get out. And that's why restrictive networks are particularly bothersome to people. Because if you, you know, if, if you have, say, traditional Medicare and you don't go to anybody, then you might just go to where your primary care physician tells you to go. 
In fact, you probably will. That's what most people do. And you may, so long as everything goes right, you may actually be operating within practice a very restricted set of doctors. But if you don't think it's going right, you can ask around and you can ask your friends and you can try somebody else in traditional Medicare. Whereas if you're in a Medicare Advantage plan, uh, if you're on the, you know, the Medicare versions of HMOs and now, right. the right. real versions, then you're stuck. And if they, and if the doctor your friend tells you is good isn't in the HMO you signed up for, then you can't move until, you know, you know ne- next December or whenever the, uh, the open enrollment is. And so to a lot of people, choice is a way of protecting themselves. Uh, it's, not, it's not that you can choose quality in advance. You want to be able to respond to bad quality if, if you think you're experiencing it. And so ironically, the way economists ought to think, <laughs> okay, is that people would want maximum choice to protect themselves against experience. But it's, it's, really, it's really more of a planner's model that you're going to choose among just a few insurance companies. There's all sorts of contradictory thinking going on in health policy. And again, there's contradictory thinking on the left and right, too. But the centrists are particularly contradictory. What's interesting is that as a movement liberal and as, you know, an ordinary consumer, a person who's dealing with being in these situations and having a family and results and outcomes, is that what you've described is really badly served by language that invokes ideas of choice or preference, ordinals, or or anything like that. What you're talking about is a power relationship. You're talking about a consumer's best case scenario of having the power to walk away, to say, I don't like this job. It's not working out for me. I'm going to get another one. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to change things for the better. It's actually a relatively American idea, the idea that you can have something better. You can go somewhere else. You can do something that addresses your individual concerns and that you have the power to do that. You don't like your representative in Congress. Well, by God, you'll organize against and you'll try to get somebody who represents you better elected. Well, these, these days, you're better off moving. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But, but, uh, but, uh, but that's, that's another true. way of choosing. Right? But, you, you don't like the school system, you move to another town. Well, that's um, the problem. That, that, that's a big yeah. problem in, in people's minds. So, so what you're describing is you're describing not choice, not that people want to, you know, a diet Mountain Dew, and then they want a diet 7-Up, and then they want this. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about power. They want power. They want to be able to say, this isn't working out. It, when you say escape, what you mean is freedom, power. Well, I think that, you know, you know, yeah, yeah. I certainly would fully agree with you that choice is in large measure about power. Who gets to make a choice? Right. Okay. And economists tend not to want to think about it that way because they think that choice is exchange and nobody is forced to do anything. And this is a big difference between uh, political scientists and economists in general. But I think that within economics, there's also a, a logic, okay, which says that one of the logics of the market is to make people choose in a way that maximizes efficiency. That, for instance, within market logic, giving people things for free is not really choice. People have to pay for things, and when they pay, they figure out how much they want them. So the market is a system that causes people to think about how much they want things and choose. And in the theory of the market, then, if everybody is buying in a market, 
they will maximize their utilities by choosing the things they want most. But choice only makes sense under some constraint. And choice without constraint isn't economics. Economics is about the allocation of scarce resources or the creating of incentives to create more resources. So choice inherently involves some limits on you. And that's why the extreme version of this is on the right wing. People talk about consumer-directed health care, and they say consumer-directed health care, and they mean you're paying out of pocket. You have higher cost share. Now, from my standpoint, consumer-directed health care means I don't have to pay anything, so I can choose just whatever the heck I want, right? And I think that's how the average citizen might think about this. But from a certain kind of economic perspective, paying out of pocket is consumer direction, even though you have fewer choices because they're limited by what's in your pocket. But the, the right-wing view is, is uh, and again, it's deep within the economics profession, but the right-wing view is very different from what you're talking about for reasons that are sort of like what you're talking about, I think. That makes a lot of sense. Choice has to be disciplined. Remember, the term is market discipline. Right. But you're also talking about people who've come up with ways to describe most efficient or perfect or maximized optimal outcomes. I mean, uh, when you talk about constraints and, and that free things are bad and that choice must always be constrained, etc., I'm reminded of you know David Cutler's work in which he couldn't be more clear that subsidies in the wrong amount that encourage a level of uncompensated something are bad. And so he's got equations that actually demonstrate what the point is at which people's subsidized premiums are buying them too much. And so we have to make sure in a system that, like the one that David Cutler envisions, David Cutler, who wrote that scathing letter, I think, about Berwick, as a matter of fact, that he, he wasn't as committed enough to David Cutler's ideas about, quote unquote, market oriented uh, healthcare systems, that in that circumstance, we're looking at optimal point at which someone puts in amount of money and they're not subsidized too greatly or too little. And but therefore, they get the perfect started. insurance product. That covers right, right. their economists start from the premise that if something is free, there will be too much of it. That any insurance inherently leads to oversupply. Question is whether the benefits of the uh, insurance, which mean, which essentially are that people who do not have to do without, who might otherwise have to do without, are balanced off out, uh, you know, are greater than the than the social cost from the fact that insurance must, by definition, cause overconsumption. Now. You know, that's that's just baked in the cake of the analysis because the analysis starts from the premise that efficiency uh, depends on individuals uh, making the choices that make the most sense to them under constraint. So if efficiency requires constraint, if you eliminate constraint, you must get excess. And that's just baked in the cake. Uh, Tom Rice's book about, how con- about uh, right. health economics is really right. good on that. Now, Cutler is an example and there's a recent piece by Cutler, uh, David Blumenthal, who's a doctor, who's the, mm-hmm. who's the head of the Commonwealth Foundation. Yep. I forget the third author, but somebody, somebody similar, similarly eminent, uh, in which among the lovely things they say about cost control, they say that restricting the prices paid to physicians and hospitals is a form of rationing. Now, from where I'm coming from, I haven't a clue how you get there. Why is paying the providers less rationing? I don't get it. And why in particular is regulation that pays the providers less rationing, but market competition that pays the providers less not rationing? 
but that's but these are well, you know the rights that. of centrist Democrats, right? I mean, Cutler was an advisor, advisor to sure. Obama. Uh, Blumenthal was certainly right. a major major advisor to to that group of to, to the administration. Right. They're not Phil Graham conservatives. They, they, they certainly don't David think Stein. they're right wing. Okay. But there's there's something about price regulation which is inherently an interference with the market, and interference with the market through administrative needs must be rationing, or something like that. It doesn't look like rationing by a normal definition of the word, which is somebody says what I can get and what I can't get. Right? Paying doctors less is not rationing on that basis at all. And yet these extremely eminent you know, leaders of the mainstream these days of uh, so-called democratic party thinking think price regulation is rationing. It's insane. Right. It is insane. It's insane the same way that, say, the people who ran the Iraq coalition provisional authority decided that the first thing they ought to do would be to set up stock markets in Baghdad so companies there could could raise money that way and that that was really important and that that was bringing freedom to Iraq and that things would just get better from there. It's a long way of saying that it's really ideologically based and, and yet it's not an ideology that proclaims itself as such. It's an ideology well, that proclaims itself as being pragmatic or somehow evidence-based or somehow n not not right-wing and, and not, of course, that old, creaky, terrible, orthodox, left-wing stuff. Well, and, and it's, um, yeah, the, there is the difference that, you know, the stock markets in Baghdad were a bunch of 27-year-old morons whose experience was mainly in Republican Party politics. Uh, and these are, you know, the Otto Eckstein Professor of Health Economics at Harvard, the uh, president of the Commonwealth Foundation, which is one of the three main health policy foundations, and so on. And so if it is ideology, it is insidious ideology, it is professional ideology. It is more a professional worldview than, I mean, because it certainly, for instance, is not associated with the Republican versions of this, which are, for instance, that if you're poor, it's your own darn fault that you don't have health insurance. Right? Really? I mean, Paul Ryan's I plan seems to be right up their alley. You know, I mean, I, I know, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, premium I support they, seems right up their alley. I don't see anybody, any of these people, having a terrible problem with Medicare Part D, really, um, or its premises. And that's that's, that's that's interesting. I, I do not. Um, you know, I've, I've never. I've never, I've never seen them writing on on, uh, on premium support. In the oh, you sure you yeah. do. You, you see them writing about it in 1996 and 1998 and 1999 and 2000. And then you see it right up until you see John Bro in uh, the Democratic Leadership Council's Progressive Policy Institute and those people. And you see Hank Aaron and you see all those people at Brookings. You see all of them writing about it right up until the point in 2005 when the Republicans holding the House and the Senate and the presidency do it. Well, okay, so there's so there's a bunch of things going on here. For for um, prescription drugs. For prescription drugs. Right, right, right. I think if you start one of the one of the problems is if is if you started with traditional Medicare, then turning traditional Medicare into so called premium support, which is just voucher and managed competition, okay? Well, I wouldn't say that. And neither would well, they. Hank Aaron I, like for two thousand and ten wouldn't say that. Right? Well, I know Hank Aaron would not have said that or in explicitly said that premium support wasn't a voucher plan. He was wrong. It was clearly a voucher plan. I'm sorry. There was actually an exchange at the time between uh, 
Hank Aaron, and this is really inside baseball, between Hank Aaron and Bob Reichauer, who wrote the original 1995 Democrats for Premium Support Plan uh, piece, and um, you know other people you know, Ted Mama and John Oberlander, about what are, what are you talking about? This isn't a voucher plan. <laughs> um, and I and I I wrote a letter to the editor and all that kind of thing. Of course, it was a voucher plan. It was clearly a voucher plan. Henry admits now it was a voucher plan, um, but. Uh, why? why? Why is multi-payer premium support a voucher when there's nothing going out in terms of a voucher into people's mailboxes that they're taking and that they're making market choices about? It's simply the government deciding that these multi-payers are going to be paying the bill and people are going to pay their premiums that are going to be supported by the government. Because people were going to, because people were going to choose among them, and and it and it and it would have cost them more if they chose. A more generous plan, if I remember correctly. That's true. Uh, that's, of course, that's true. But it's not literally it's, a check to go somewhere else. It works like a voucher. If it walks like a voucher and talks like a voucher, quacks like a voucher, it's a voucher. The point here is, again, this is really total inside baseball. Uh, that there have been plenty of Democrats. Uh, there's, there's these divisions. Okay, if you're a John Bro, a real conservative Democrat, okay. Then you want to make me- then you wanted to make Medicare more like the private insurance market, which was an incredibly bad idea. Right? And John Bro did support essentially a voucher plan, calling it premium support for a short period of time. There were uh, people, you know, real liberals. I mean, particularly Hank Allen, who really is a very strong supporter of of Medicare um, and Social Security, who um, who, for whatever reason having to do with their sense of where the world was going and what they had to do to be players, were attracted to this premium support idea and therefore promoted it. Uh, but their motives were not the same as bros. Of course. Yeah. Now, but, if but can you, you talk are, about that? Can you talk about where the world was going, the strange, weird thing that happened to the Democratic Party in the apparently late 1970s? Something happened to them. And they were somehow more amenable somehow to things they apparently knew would not work in practice. These unicorns became somehow really attractive. And there's something about that process that, that I think you might provide a lot of insight for, given the amount of, amount of writing you've done about it and the amount of, amount of research you've done into it. Oh what, what, was, what was that? How did this start? Well, I think there's a bunch of things going on, and it's very, it, obviously it varies from policy to policy. It begins with, you know, the beginning of a political turn to the right, uh, with the uh, backlash against the late 60s and early 70s that, that did occur as just a sort of a broad political pattern. After all, you, know, you have to remember that Richard Nixon got reelected with 51% of the vote. This is not a really good sign for the prospects for liberal politics. The second thing that happened uh, was the stagflation of the 1970s, you know, which, where we had high inflation and high import, unemployment. The result of that was a loss of confidence, at least among democratic economists, or a lot of the democratic economists, in the idea that you could manage the economy with fiscal policy. And, you know, Keynesianism never told you what to do about a a big change in the trend of growth. Yeah, it would tell you what to do about uh, about cycles, but it didn't. If you're sitting in 1980 and the economy has been growing, productivity has been growing much more slowly since 1973. You know, Keynes doesn't really tell you what to do about that. And so, the Democrats, the Democratic economists, who thought, well, you know, the economy sort of grows, and uh, you. 
and you just have to manage the cycles with demand management, lost their confidence. I mean, there were other reasons. It turns out that managing the cycles with demand management is sort of hard. It's, you know, you, you start a public works project, and by the time, and you know, because times are bad, and, you know, it takes you six, six months to figure out you have to do a, some public works projects, and it takes you uh, another six months to pass the legislation and another year to issue the contract, and by then uh, you're, you're stimulating demand when the when the economy is already recovered, and so <laughs> and so you've hit it wrong, uh, and and it's very it's it, a lot of the stuff that people wanted to do turned out to be hard to do, which doesn't mean that it was wrong that the idea was wrong, but a lot of uh, democratic economists, you know, at places like Brookings, uh, lost confidence in in macroeconomic management through the demand side, and we had the, the and again this. When you have a commodity price shock, that doesn't tell you anything about other overall theories, but they thought it did. Why? And if the price of oil just hadn't, you know, if OPEC hadn't, you know, raised oil prices so that I think it was like, you know, twelve dollars a gallon in 1975, and 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 if we hadn't had before then, uh, you know, Nixon going off of Bretton Woods and really truly being fiat, if those two things don't happen, you know, well, well here's, here's here's the problem. I mean. Beats me what to say about the money supply. But even if you have a price shock, you can have a you know on a commodity, which means the prices go up and then labor demands more increases, and then you know labor demands increases. So the people who give the increases raise their prices, and then labor demands more increases, and you get a cycle. What happens is that the Democratic president decides you know in 1980, great great year since he's trying to be reelected. Uh, decides that inflation has to be stopped by, by budget deficit reduction. And he, of course, he appoints a Federal Reserve director who's going to do it by whacking the money. Supply. Paul Volcker. Yeah. And, uh, they do it, then they, 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 the shock is so great, uh, that they sort of back off. Well, they cause a recession. They, yes, but then, but then they sort of back off from the recession and then, then Reagan comes in and, <laughs> In the in the first year, you still have it turns out that you still have uh, fairly constrictive fiscal policy, and you have a really constrictive monetary policy. And by the way, they killed the inflation. They killed the inflation with a recession, um, and uh, then you have uh, beginning in July of 1982, you have very stimulative policy. Uh, Volcker starts stimulating because the Mexican and South American banks are about to, because of the, because of the problems with the, with the banking system, actually. Uh, the banking system gets in big trouble because of bad loans to Latin yes. America. And so uh, he bails them and, out. And so he, he bails them out, and to do that, he has to boost the money supply. Uh, meanwhile, the Reagan tax cuts and defense buildup kick in. So fiscal policy gets real stimulative, but inflation never really comes back, and uh, we get these huge deficits. And by the time you get to 1984, we've killed inflation. The economy is doing okay, but we do have huge deficits, and things aren't really great for the working class anyway because wages still not going up for uh, for a lot of people. As intended. Uh, as in- as intended. Well, I'm not sure how intended it is. Somewhat intended. Well, that's the whole uh, but, point of killing inflation is to kill wage increases. Well, right? except yeah, I, I am not sure that, for instance, if you ask the 
Yeah, somebody, I'm not sure that if you asked a Charlie Schultz, say, who was head of the CEA, mm-hmm. yep. the President's Council of Economic Advisors in 7980, that he really wanted to kill. That, that I don't think he would have said that he wanted wages uh, over the next 30 years not to go any higher than what they were in 1973. Sure, not 30 years. <laughs> Certainly not 30 years. But the point is that it, but when it comes to 1984, um, you've got a beginning of different set of pressures, which is essentially manufacturing still in trouble. And uh, the question is, what can a democratic economy, what can a democratic candidate say? What can a democratic economist say? You can't say they couldn't go, you know, lose money, monetary policy. And the economy as a whole was sort of growing. The economy was doing pretty well. What do you criticize the economy for? There's, there's really two things you could criticize. You could say that there was a big trade deficit and that therefore we should go protectionist to protect American manufacturing. Of jobs. course, yes. Or you could say that the big problem is the budget deficit. And mainstream democratic economists, the kind of people who are advising Mondale, uh, for them, uh, free trade is, is a religious faith. Uh, for almost all economists, free trade is a religious faith. And they could make an argument that growth in the long run depends on investment. Events, investment depends on savings. Government budget deficits reduce national savings, therefore reduce investment. Uh, and therefore, if you, the way to improve growth in the long run is by running lower budget deficits or even running a surplus. And that view, probably because there was a modest amount of truth to it, Probably because they had to say something, and probably because the only alternative was protection, became the party line among mainstream democratic economists in the 1980s. You know, I was I I got to Brookings as a student uh, in the government studies program in 1985, and by then it was clearly the party line, and I just sat there and watched it, it become a stronger and stronger party line. And you, you see it, uh, so when they have the National Economic Commission to deal with the deficit, uh, in, you know, in 1989, which Pat Moynihan, not, you know, a right winger, you know, who had, who had been very active in cutting the deal that saved Social Security in 1982 and 83, uh, Pat Moynihan shared that and he made a big deal about national savings. Well, in 1979, uh, Democrats were saying that the deficit caused inflation, right? Well, the standard economists believe the deficit causes inflation. Deficits do cause inflation under certain circumstances. The point is that the argument was no longer about inflation or unemployment. The argument was that long-term economic growth requires getting rid of debt, requires greater national savings, requires getting rid of deficits or at least cutting them substantially. And that in the long run, the greatest threat on the deficit side was the growing cost over time of Social Security and Medicare. And again, there was this weird political calculation by at least some of the more liberal people at places like Brookings that you could uh, argue for deficit reduction as a way of saving Social Security and Medicare by making the economy bigger so it would be easier to pay for Social Security and Medicare in the future because people would be richer so they'd be more willing to pay the taxes. And they even started that argument. And that, that one, you know, again, this, again, this is all inside baseball, but people like Hank Aaron at Brookings, Ned Gramlich, who was chairman of the Social Security Advisory Council in the early 90s, all these people started, you know, making this, uh, these kinds of arguments. And, uh, the upshot was that the Democrats, uh, became committed, uh, and certainly in the Clinton administration, to the idea that 
deficit reduction was a form was a way of increasing economic growth, and that the cost of entitlement, so-called Social Security and Medicare, were a problem. But the Democrats were totally divided because, of course, Bill Clinton comes in wanting to stimulate the economy first, but then deal with the deficit, just like Barack Obama, wanting to do health care reform, which is, of course, a big new quote-unquote entitlement, <laughs> right? The government guarantees to you that you will have health insurance, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, if you can pay and, for it above a certain amount, but yes, okay. Well, in the same sense as Medicaid is an entitlement. If you meet certain qualifications, the government will send you a check. It's not a universal, but it is an entitlement in the sense that the law says if you meet certain qualifications, the government sends you a check. So it's an okay. entitlement in as much as that entitlements can mean one of two things. Entitlements can mean welfare programs or entitlements can mean social insurance. It's not social insurance. Right. Well, it's actually, in this, in this case, it's really sort of bizarrely in the middle. But yeah. Um, I would say but, predictably in the middle. Go ahead. Go ahead. But okay, both. Bizarrely and predictably. Yeah. So what you get, so, so what you get is, you know, two successive Democratic administrations within a very bizarre Republican administration in between, but you get two successful Democratic administrations that are totally inconsistent, that want to expand to create the missing entitlement, right? The entire, you know, the so-called entitlement, the, the guarantee of decency to citizens of the country that doesn't exist in the United States and does exist in every other civilized nation that has any money, right? Which is healthcare, right? They want to do this at the same time as they've bought an economic analysis that says the most important thing is national savings and reducing deficit. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this edition of Virtually Speaking Counterpoint. I hope you've gotten as much out of this discussion with Dr. Joe White as I did. For more information, commentary, and extension of the discussion, visit virtually-speaking.us. Take care, folks. Bye for now. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.